I think all sensible people have the British Constitution as one of their hobbies. It is the most interesting uh, matter to, to discuss and be informed about. As Dicey said, Dicey argued, it is Parliament that is the defender of the liberties of the people, of our ancient constitution and of our freedoms. I, I give way. This is Jacob Rees-Mogg once again. The role of Speaker of the House of Commons is one of the most exalted and dignified positions in our nation-state. It is a role which supports backbenchers and ensures their voices are heard. It is a role which rests on the trust of the House and the respect of the House, both won and retained through even-handedness and fairness. It sometimes risks upsetting governments, and seven Speakers have not managed to get this balance quite right and have lost their heads because of it, including Bussey, Thorpe, and most famously Sir Thomas More. One year ago, the House of Commons chose the right on Sir Lindsay Hoyle MP to the chair because he has always kept his head throughout the nine dutiful years as the senior deputy speaker, the chairman of Ways and Means. Twelve months on, I'm delighted that he is today's guest on the Why Parliament Works podcast to reflect on his first year. Mr. Speaker, it is a great honour. It's my privilege. I thought I might begin by playing you a clip from your remarks from the Speaker's chair as Mr. Speaker-elect on November the 4th, 2019. I stand by what I've said. I stand firm that I hope this House will be once a great respected House, not just in here, but across the world. That once again... It's the envy, and we've got to make sure that tarnish is polished away, that the respect and tolerance that we expect from everyone who works in here will be shown, and we'll keep that in, in order. You have certainly spent the last 12 months polishing away, and many important voices are recognising just how much you have achieved in restoring the reputation of this House. How have you found the first 12 months in the job? Um, interesting, to say at least, a, a different experience than I could have imagined. I had the longest, probably one of the longest apprenticeships in history for any job. But actually to come into that job um, was different than I expected. Um, a general election. During a general election, uh, to find out I was diabetic. Then we had Christmas. We still had Brexit going on. And then COVID came. So what is the job really like? I'd love to know. What I would say is it's been a great experience. It's certainly been a privilege to be the speaker of this great house. But also it's the challenge and it's the challenge it throws to the speaker that's, you know, is so important to, to hopefully people judge that I have been getting it right. And that's what I want people to, you know, look at me and say, actually, he's done the right thing and that's what I want people to want. And I always wanted to ensure that the respect of the house comes back. I did want to make it a different place. And hopefully when we do whatever normality is in the future, hopefully we can have a settled time. But the one thing is, I, I've got to say, the 12 months have gone so quickly. It's been so interesting. As, as, as we know, it's been a real challenge for all of us within this house, whether that's people who work in the tea room or the clerk of the house or you as leader. All of us have had a different role to play than we expected. And we've all pulled together because we all believe in one thing. That's this house and the future of democracy. And one of the things that I've always thought must be so difficult about being Speaker is putting aside your party colours, that we all get into this House as active, partisan, party political members. You've managed to achieve complete independence 
and are respected for that, both by the government and by the opposition. You must have strong views, otherwise you wouldn't have stood for Parliament in the first place. How have you managed to put those aside so successfully? Because that's been, I think, a very important part uh, in the Speaker's role since the 19th century, at least. What, 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 what I would say is um, I was brought up in a political household. My first political job I went to, first Labour Party conference when I was born, you know, baby in arms, there was my first outing with Scarborough of all places to a Labour Party conference. So I was brought up a, very much in a political household. And as I always say, as a six-year-old delivering election leaflets, I knew that was the introduction into politics. And what I would say is, so I've had this history of being involved in a very political household, but it was about recognising what politics is about. Politics is about making a difference. The party affiliation is the vehicle that we use to make a difference for people. What I've always wanted to do was look after the people who I serve. And because it stopped me boasting, there aren't that many of us that was born and brought up in our constituencies that live the constituency that we're involved in. And that, I think, you know, gives me a real affiliation because the people that matter, the people who elect me matter the most to me. And of course, I do come from the Labour Party. I, without doubt, I have a trade union membership. I've retained my trade union membership. To give up my membership is not the easiest thing. But the fact that you actually put yourself forward to become Speaker, you must, first of all, accept that you take complete political independence. I knew that, and if I couldn't accept that to myself, I would never, ever have put myself forward. So I had prepared myself, and I'd absolutely gone through my conscious decision. Is this right? You've been an elected member in Chorley since 1980 without a break. I've served the local authority straight through to be member of Parliament. There has been no political break from 1980 to this day, representing the people of Chorley. As I say, the easiest thing for me is representing my constituents. And that's why I think I took up the challenge as Deputy Speaker. It prepares you to become independent because you have a semi-independent role. You're independent in the House, but still playing that politically within your constituency and within the region for politics. So politically, you you switch off when you come into Parliament, but you switch back on when you arrived in the constituency. So I've been partway there, and part of that challenge was, it would take me to that role to say, no, I, I've served both ways, can I do this? And I believe I could, and I believe I have. And one of the things that I think helped you most in your um putting your name forward to become Speaker was the way you had been Chairman of Ways and Means and that you had shown impartiality and no favouritism in that position, but also your chairing of the particularly heated budget debates, one of the Chairman of Ways and Means roles. Did you find that was sufficient preparation for um, uh, chairing Prime Minister's questions and having that dignified authority that manages to keep the House in order almost just with a raised eyebrow? <laughs> I'm going to say, um, because all the big events is the speakers. And that's how I'd always seen it. And suddenly I became Chairman of Ways and Means. And the biggest event of the year is budget. And it wasn't the speakers. It was the chair of Wes Means. And, 
you know, and I was so excited. But no sooner I'd been elected than suddenly I was doing a budget. And I've got to say that being around the house long enough to know who the characters were, I'd also been one of those that may have been slightly mischievous, maybe throwing the odd comment out. So I knew where the comments would come from. I knew what I was going to expect. And I knew that the whips were going to be stirring members up, as they do, positioning people around the chamber in the hope that they wouldn't be seen, but certainly trying to throw people off their speech. What I did realise was that it was slightly unfair. The Chancellor can do it without interruption, but the Leader of the Opposition couldn't. And I felt that was slightly unfair because the Leader of the Opposition had to react to something he'd only just got. So in fairness, we then allowed the Leader of the Opposition to speak without interruption as well. So it was about levelling up the playing field and making it fair for both teams which I thought was important. So that was one of the first jobs that I did. That's very interesting because it's fascinating how quickly an innovation becomes precedent and then gets lost in the mists of time and people assume uh, that the leader of the opposition is not interrupted on the budget speech and now the leader of the SNP in the House of Commons has taken the view that as he has a similar role, he won't take interventions either. And that now seems perfectly normal. And, you know, I hadn't realised it was an innovation in 2010. Yeah, and I brought it in. I said it from the chair and I thought that was important. And it was a little innovation that I thought would help the House. And I think it, I think, I think the most difficult job must be, first of all, it's difficult for the Chancellor putting a budget together, but it's much harder for the person to respond to something that they've not been involved in or not knowing what's coming. So I think it was only right that we'd give that freedom for allow them to carry out. And, and it's not the the, how should we say, the humour and the comments coming out at, at such a level. Don't get me wrong, it's not silence, far from it. It still carries on. But at least it wasn't somebody shouting every time. Will you give way? Will you give way? So at least it allowed somebody to respond. And I think that's good because it's one of the few things where our constituencies are affected on that three hours of debate. None more so people want to know whether what's gone on the booze or... What am I going to do, fill up the, the tank today? And we may say, well, we've not put the petrol up, but just say, these are the things that people are looking for because it affects all of our lives. And, of course, it's the one thing that makes people tune in. They all want to watch the news. They want to listen to it on the radio. So it is the event where it affects everybody within the United Kingdom. One way or another, that budget matters to them. And I think it's only right that our constituents can hear that without interruption. And... You keep order, and you kept order during the budget and, and now, with a quiet authority. And this is something I think is very interesting about the role of Speaker, because when I'm asked to describe how the House of Commons is governed, I can talk about the Commission, and I can talk about the Administration Committee, and I can talk about the Finance Committee. But I actually find that regardless of all of these, when the Speaker says this should happen, usually that is authoritative. How do you find this weight of authority? Do you find it is helpful? Do you deliberately um, use it cautiously and carefully? Or have you just found that if you overstep um, the bounds of quiet authority, it causes more problems than it solves? I think it's much easier to be able to look at people. People know that I've spotted them. I'll give them, just raise my finger and just do a gentle back off. I've spotted you. Don't push. And I think there's a lot of respect from both sides because it's not about humiliating people or bawling them out. That's too easy. 
So if you have to, it's lost if you do it all the time. Something I don't like doing, and I'll, I'll be quite honest, I've never had to throw anybody out of the chamber. I don't wish to. I'm hoping that I can keep good order without that, so I hope nobody now wants to test me to see if I will. But joking apart, I think I think it's important. Being able to look at somebody saying, just calm down a little and doing it in a nice way, using a bit of humour as well, I think that's much more effective way of making the chamber work better. And hopefully that helps with tolerance and respect of each other from each side. And it's so easy for the chamber to boil over. So it's keeping that temperature down. I try to ensure that people can express themselves, but without the real heat, without this extreme anger coming out. Don't get me wrong, I've not said I've got the perfect answer to it, but I think it's it's, it's about in a way that we deal with it. And I think... That's a role of a speaker. As we know, I'm the 158th speaker. What I would like to say is every one of us has been different and none of us are the same. And I think that is good. We all bring a style and hopefully my style is what helps keep good, hopefully what people would say is good order to the chamber without anger from the chair. And one of the things you said you wanted to do was help improve the global standing of the House of Parliament. Um, it's often referred to wrongly as the mother of parliaments, um, but never mind. This is such a common mistake that I think it's got to the point of being allowed to stand. And certainly the reputation has gone down in recent years and even decades. Um, what ways do you bring to improving that, partly in the orderliness of debate, but also in how the House of Commons is administered? I, th I think you're absolutely right, Mother of Parliament, but I think what people look to is the Westminster model. I think it is about the Westminster model, and people see us as a natural home for democracy and something that should be replicated and carried out. I think we'd lost some of that, I'll be quite honest with you, and I don't blame anybody in particular, but I think people had like, lost trust in us. They'd lost faith that we were the ideal role model, which we always have, had been, and what I want to do is make sure that we put that back. And it's about trying to show people that we can have good debate without the hatred, without the anger, and also getting the right outcomes of what democracy elects us to do. So it's building up respect, not with just within the chamber, with, but with our constituents. But it's about a global respect of saying, no, that is the model that we want. That is the model that we want to copy. And that is something that I believe that we should export. I think, I think it's so important to us. But it's how do we get people? I think it's about inward delegations. It's about showing this house off to its best. It's about welcoming people here and be, being able to explain why it's important that you have scrutiny, why democracy is important. And it's about helping others establish a democratic future for their country. And of course, there are great democracies, none more so than we're seeing in America at the moment. No different than India. You know, and quite rightly, I would say, well, India quite rightly modelled itself on ourselves. And what I would say is it's about building that trust up with other countries, with other democracies. And as I say, fledgling democracies, we should always help, we should always support, and wherever we can. And we do send our officials out there. We help make it happen. And that's what we've got to be good at 
is supporting others as well as us. And of course, in the last year since you've been Speaker, we've had the challenge of COVID and keeping scrutiny going in a virtual parliament. Um, is it harder to chair parliament when people are appearing on screens? And I suppose the one question I'm very keen to ask you is, does Bob Blackman mind being called a pilot all the time? <laughs> <laughs> it, what, what I would say is, I think, I think it's, if it's all virtual, it's easy. If it's hybrid, slightly more difficult. What, what does become difficult when you've got the minister and you've got the person asking the question, who are both virtual, trying to get that balance right in case it goes wrong, but making sure that we have somebody on the front bench in case they do drop out. And I think I'll work with whatever the House wants me to work with. I will try and get the best out of whatever the House decides it wishes. And I will work with that for the best of everybody. So there are challenges to whatever we do. And what I would say is, what do I miss? What I would say, I miss the atmosphere. If I was to pick one real thing about what we do now, and we're doing the right thing in keeping the numbers down, but you do miss that excitement, that electric that ripples or sparks around the chamber. I do miss that. And in Bob Blackman's case, I think, you know, I've got to say, I've known Bob a long time. He's a great MP. He's a great man. And I've got to say, he does look like a pilot coming into land. It's fantastic. So Bob ribs me, and I just gently tease him about landing his question. But no, it's all in good humour. There is nothing nasty about it, far from it. And I think that also helps the chamber as well. Just having that little bit of humour that's not insulting, that doesn't mean anything, that just helps make the chamber relax. I think Bob takes it in very good part, but I don't know if you know it's gone viral on the internet, the, you calling him and making references to pilots. If you haven't seen it, you must uh, uh, look at it. But from a government point of view, good scrutiny leads to better government. And therefore, the electricity in the House is, I think, think something very, it's very important that it is harder for a minister responding at the dispatch box when there is that taut atmosphere because it really puts a pressure on which perhaps isn't there um, when the electricity is absent. I, I can see it from that way. I can see it from the opposition as well, that both sides get behind each other as well, holding people to account. The thing is that at the moment, you make a comment, everybody hears it. When you've got a packed chamber, you don't hear it. I think in the end, as, and I do come back, we've got to work with what we've got. We've got to get the best out of what we've got. But I still look forward to going back to those days with the excitement, the minister holding and pushing the legislation through, but the opposition holding the government to account. There is nothing better than when the House is exciting and it's something that people want to know about as well. You know, I really, I get so much more out of that. And, and it is something I do miss. And I do hope that we will return to normal times where people will be intervening, people will be giving way, and we'll get that real excitement back. But in the meantime, it's important that government is allowed to govern, it's allowed to get its legislation through, and the opposition is allowed to scrutinise. So we've got to get the best out of what we've got now. But let's get back to those great days. In your chairmanship over the last year, I don't know if people know quite how personally brave you have been because you were diagnosed with diabetes, which is a risk condition for the coronavirus. Yet you have been in the chair every day. You haven't taken a leave of absence. Um, 
Uh, how have you coped with that? It must be difficult to uh, have this happen suddenly, unexpectedly, and to get type 1 diabetes at an age when you would have expected to be safe from it. It came as a real shock. It came as a shock as it was in the middle of a general election or towards the back end of a general election. Um, my wife said, you're not well, you're going to the doctor. I'm, I'm fine. No, she said, seriously, yeah, I got, I felt okay. She said, you're not okay. And, and in the end, living in a village with the doctors, um, she set me up to go down and just call in. And I got in there and they did some immediate tests. And they said, you're going nowhere. You're going straight to A&E. I said, you're joking. No, they said, this is serious. Do you want us to call the ambulance? Or have you got somebody to take you? So at this stage, I took a deep breath. And I said, I, I, I don't think it's as bad as you think. No, you're going straight down. And in fact, they phoned uh, the A&E at Cholly. It was still open. And they phoned them through. It was in the morning. And they said, he's coming in. Better get there. Of course, everybody knows when I'm arriving. Oh, hello, how are you? Somebody's trying to give me case because they're going through. And then uh, I'm in the consultant in the room before the consultant comes. And they said, oh, by the way, I'm glad I've got you. Is there any chance that we can boot you in for doing an opening the fate that we've got coming up? I'm like, I can't believe this. It is quite funny. And everybody's been really nice. And they're all there. And uh, they, they said, Luke Lindsay, they said, we, we, you, you are in danger of not being with us much longer. It's that bad. We're going to put you on the ward now. We've got to, we've got to get insulin in immediately. You're in a very, very serious position. And it's interesting because the, the, I was very lucky. The senior consultant, now diabetes consultant, was actually in the hospital on that day, and he came straight down, who I met. And he, he, I said to him, I know what you're going to say. You warned me this three years ago. I've got to try and slow down. He said, Lindsay, he said, no. He said, we've got you now. I said, look, I'm in a general election. I said, I cannot be staying in hospital. I've got to go home. He said, I'm going to do a deal with you. He said, we're going to get some insulin to you immediately. We're going to keep you in here for the day. We're going to monitor it. If we can begin to get these levels, you're not going to be right. You're going to have to take three days out minimum at home, and you don't do anything, you can please switch off. And that was the deal to stop me staying in hospital. So I got me home. So then I had to review from somebody who's never ill, uh, suddenly um, I realised, as you say, type 1 diabetic, which doesn't normally happen at my age, and something that is, is, is quite rare. Um, so I got home and I thought, well, in fairness, yes, I'm the speaker, yes, I'm in the middle of a general election. We've got a prime minister who's been a type 1 diabetic. She's been a role model. If somebody can be prime minister, I can be speaker. So what am I bothered about? You know, he's always sulking about these things. We've got to get on with it, you know. The biggest shock was that I could no longer have full-fat Coca-Cola. My life was changed. Well, I didn't have sugar and tea, so some things weren't too bad. Um, but, you know, no Coca-Cola. I'm like, well, this can't be right. But anyway, so complete diet change, complete reflection. And what I had realised is I'd gone from 14 stone and I was just under 11 stone in the space of about six to eight weeks. So, I, you know... We knew it was serious. I think most people thought it was cancer. Thankfully, it wasn't. It was the diabetes that caused the problem. So after that, four injections a day, and I'm back on and wanted to come back to the house. And I want, if a, as I say, Theresa May phoned me up. She was very good, Prime Minister, and gave me some advice and said, Lindsay, you know, you can do it. You can work with it. She said, my best tip for you is, she said, if your sugar levels drop, make sure you take a jelly baby. Have jelly babies with you. So... 
I wasn't a fan of Jelly Babies, but I thought they're a bit better than these sweets that uh, these diabetic sweets. They're awful. So, in fairness, Helen's very good, and she stands at the side of me and she makes me check. Sometimes people wonder why I've got my mobile out, and it's to ch- check my levels because my adrenaline goes up as well when I'm doing questions, PMQs. But also, I can have a drop, and it's interesting. I check my arm, and I've gone into the red zone, which is low is very bad, and I was in the chair. And in fairness, my wife can spot it that my eyes don't quite seem to focus. So I was given a jelly baby. So I put my jelly baby in. In fact, I put two jelly babies in, eating them rather quickly to get the sugar boost. And somebody complained to our office, what is the speaker doing? We've seen that person give him a sweet during the questions. <laughs> so, so amazing how much detail that people observe watching questions. So in fairness, it, it did the job. I came back into norm. So I do monitor it. And people say, I wonder why he gets his mobile. It's actually just to check because I've got my monitor on my arm. It's linked to the hospital. So they know exactly. And if I'm not behaving, they phone my wife up because they know it's no point ringing me. That seems very wise of them. And it's reassuring that you're not looking at your telephone because you're bored by the um, speeches that are being made, particularly when I'm speaking. Oh, one could never be bored. And beyond uh, the role in the chair, you have a role in determining business, in determining rulings on procedure. And that, I think, is where um, your impartiality is perhaps at its most important because your decisions need to be made and not challenged. And you've said that if the clerks give different advice, you would publish that. Uh, You haven't yet had to do that, have you? No. And I think it was important. I don't want to out on the limb. Um, I believe that the House should not be ruled by my interpretation. And I certainly don't want it to end up in the court where it becomes a challenge. And that was one of the first things I stated at early doors. And if I did... I said that would be placed in the library for all to see if I disagree with the clerk's advice. We do go through um, the advice with the clerks. I challenge the clerks. We'll push back against the clerks. We'll come. So far, I believe we've done the right thing by Parliament. I've tried to ensure my impartiality has come through all the way through. And as you say, I have not had to put that into the library as yet. And I imagine you hope um, not to be doing that regularly. Never to have to do that. But I think it is important. And, and, and I say this, I respect the advice of the clerks. I respect their independence because in the end, they are people that we built trust in, that have developed the advice that is second to none. And I lay so much on their advice and it's good to challenge them because it's good to hear them come back at me as well. And that challenge is so important for both of us. But in the end, I do respect the job they do. They are in so important to the future of this house. Their impartiality is second to none. And precedent provides a very good basis for reassuring people about impartiality, that it uh, takes things beyond the level of questioning and gives an authority that is time-honoured. Of course. And... I don't want to reinvent good advice, good precedent. And I think that's where you can end up getting yourself in trouble. I think it's about making sure you take the house with us. And even if people don't like what you've done, I think they do respect that I've taken the decision for the right reason with the right advice. 
And I think that goes on both sides. When they might not quite like what the answer is, but they respect the answer has been correctly brought forward. Uh, I so agree with you. Um, I've often had very interesting discussions with the clerks, but they are so knowledgeable that when they say in the end, no, this is the ruling, I have always respected it and had confidence in it. But I'm just wondering about how you fit everything in, because you're in the chamber for hours. You have to rule on precedence and on orderliness of what goes on in the chamber. But you're also responsible to a large extent for the administration of the building. If a a member's past doesn't work, the member's as likely to ask you as anybody else. How do you fit all this in? (laughs) Very long hours. (laughs) As you rightfully know, we all do long hours. But I I I think it is about setting up the day, isn't it? And I always start off the day, you know, I think it's good to have some, uh, you know, get to the tea room, let's get some porridge. Let's start off with something that's substantial to, for the day. And it's about going through the day ahead. It's about the Speaker's Secretary taking me through that day, you know, this new Chief of Staff we've got, we go through it, what we're putting in and what we've got to do. And that will run until I know the day is finished. And that's what's so important to me. The Chamber is very, very important. But that's only a small part of the day. And it is about trying to ensure. Today, the first question I got over my porridge was, can you help me? My alarm's going off and I can't get Chubb, who are responsible for the security of the member, to get this to stop. Thanks for that. I will now take that on board. And and in fairness, it was dealt with. And I've had a message back to say, don't worry, it's all now been resolved. But that's the kind of start to the day. But it's everything else we fit in. It's, you know, different reviews, the security measures, meeting with everybody. Um, and today's been, you know, just another day where we try and fit everybody in. And what I've always tried to ensure is that this door is open to anybody on this estate because everybody matters. So, yes, MPs, of course, are what this house is about. But also, if there is an issue for staff and there is a problem, I want to hear what that problem is. So it's about fitting my day around the needs of the house and trying to do the best thing by the house. But I think it's fair to say that you are a very approachable speaker and that you wear the weight of your great office extremely lightly. And I think any MP would feel comfortable coming to talk to you, though the historic nature of the role of speaker is by its nature quite intimidating. That Because you're so outgoing, that must be quite a surprise to you that actually people are thinking, good heavens, it's the speaker. I mustn't dare say anything to him, which must be an inevitable effect of your great office. I think think it's about, and we we come back round, each speaker has a different style and a different way in dealing with the role that they've got, such an important role, such a challenge. And I think what I realised straight away was that History matters to me. This house matters. But sometimes parts of it are not required. You know, it was like a medieval court is the way that I looked. At it. You know, the fact if I walked in a room, everybody stands up. It's very nice, but, you know, we're not at school now. And in fairness, people who work with me all day, every day, were jumping up when I walked in. I said, Luke, we're going to work together. You're going to wear your knees out. And I become more and more embarrassed that you keep jumping up. So I said, look, you know, you are respectful. 
I accept that and I don't take that away. But you don't have to jump up every time I come in the room. And if I walk somewhere, I am capable of managing to get to the other side of the room on my own. I can pull my own chair up where it was kept being thrust under me. It's all very nice, but I said, this is you know, not really what I want. And for 10 years, we'd had walking down this corridor here into the office where we were held outside and we all walked in single file in order of deference. So the door then opens, Chairman of Ways and Means comes in, first deputy, second deputy, clerk of the house, assistant clerk, sergeant at arms. And this happened every day and every morning. And for 10 years, I knew who each other's was. And I just thought, look, history is important, but nobody sees this. And actually, it's about having a more open discussion in the morning with the speaker and the facts we don't have to start off the day with deference. So all that's gone. And it, that was important to me. Uh, none of us would have predicted the last 12 months. So I'm going to ask you the impossible question. How do you see the next 12 months going? And what do you want to see happen uh, from the chair? I've given up on predictions. I thought I could predict the last 12 months. No, I think, I think what we've got to do, we've got to look beyond COVID. We've got to think positive. We've got to try and get back to what the house was. I want, I want life back in the house. I want to make sure that people can come into the house and enjoy it. The fact is overseas visits, MPs performing at their best, select committees meeting in the way that we expect them to. So if my 12 months, and what I'm hoping for is normality, the house working well, and having what hopefully will be a new beginning for Parliament, a new beginning in the sense that this is what it should be like. This should be the hustle, the bustle, the electric back in the chamber. That's what I really want to see, and that's what I envisage. So I've done the first 12 months. I'm hoping the next 12 months will be nothing like this. No, well, I think we can all agree with that, that getting back to normality will be for the better. That's right. As we've discussed earlier, you're very grounded in your constituency. There's been discussions in the past about whether there should be a special seat for the Speaker. But I've always thought that the Speaker having a specific seat, a genuine seat with constituents, is crucially important to maintaining the respect of the role. I imagine you would like nothing less than to be elevated to some random seat and taken away from Chorley. Yes, the member for the Commons, you know, it will, it will be different. Look, home is jolly. My constituents matter. It's where my family live. It's where I was born and brought up. So I'm part of Chorley. Chorley is me. And it, and it will be very hard to envisage not representing the people. As I say, I've been doing it since 1980, which is a pretty long go at it. You know, and I've loved every minute of it. I was the youngest councillor ever elected. And I've been there all the way through that. And I think it's important because I know what other MPs are facing. My mailbag continues. I do my surgeries. I'm back home. I walk around Chorley Market on a Saturday. I really know what's going on when I walk around the market. People tell me what's going on. And it's that link and that relationship. So I think the danger is that you get put in a glass bowl. I've seen it with prime ministers. Suddenly you're surrounded with people who only want to tell you what you want to hear. If you really want to hear what's going on, get back down with the 
with the people who you represent because they will really tell you who things are. And I think that's what's important to me. And if your constituents won't, I understand you've got a parrot who will express himself quite forcefully and sometimes in Anglo-Saxon English. Is that right? He doesn't swear. <laughs> in fairness to him, I've got to say, Boris, in fairness, never, ever has used any Anglo-Saxon word. This is Boris the parrot, not the Prime Minister. But of course, but he does think he's the Prime Minister. That's the thing with Boris, as he will shout, point of order, statement, He's got all these great terms. Lock the doors. Unlock. It's endless. And, you know, he's, he's, he, you know he, he is part of the house. All the animals have always been named after senior politicians. And I always thought that was important. And I would say to him, usually a characteristic between the animal and the politician they're named after. So the tortoise was very easy. Huge tortoise. Hard shell. Not for turning. Had to be Maggie. Never turn what it pushes dogs out of the way and everything. And of course, and that's what it's about. It's about having that relationship. And of course, Boris the Parrot is full of fun, beats himself a little bit, but he's full of joy and his feathers are rather ruffled. So I thought, well, what greater person he could be named after? And in fairness, it was only the Mayor of London when he got named Boris. So the parrot was going on to greater things as well. Very much so. Elevated onto a higher perch. And you have a, a cat that is really doing the Dick Whittington stuff and keeping the rodents out of Parliament uh, for the first time in centuries. It, it, very important. Patrick is a very posh cat. He really is something special. And of course, we have a very special peer, Lord Cormac. Intelligent, a man of great knowledge, just like the Patrick that we have. Excellent, but very good naming um, skills. Well, Mr. Speaker, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I hope that people who listen will see that not only do you hold the most important uh, office outside government in this country, in the royal family, but how enormously human you are and how kindly you are to MPs who come in new and see this very imposing chamber and this great weight of history that they're following in, but they know they've got a friend in the chair. Mr Speaker, thank you very much. Thank you.